Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Timo Bolt, founder and CEO of Gusto, the largest meal kit company in the United Kingdom, which Timo founded at the ripe old age of 27. In the last seven years, its valuation has grown to over $1 billion. Now that's some seriously impressive growth. And you're going to love hearing how Timo and his team have done it. He's constantly, and I mean constantly, pushing himself and his company to grow and get better. They've been through all the standard founder-led challenges and have come through them with a culture that's obsessed with delivering great value, working collectively, and dreaming big dreams. You know, it takes intention to push yourself and stretch your belief, but it's worth it because to paraphrase Timo, setting mediocre targets is a really good way to get mediocre results. This conversation is basically a blueprint you can follow if you want to find creative ways to stretch yourself and your team to go for big goals. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Timo Bolt. Timo, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, David. Absolute pleasure. Good. You know, Timo, I always like to start at the beginning. Tell us about your upbringing. I uh, grew up in Berlin, Germany, um, as you might be able to tell from my accent. Um, and back then, Berlin was uh, divided in four zones following World War II. So a lot of my neighbors were Americans. My mom, um, which was quite unique, she lived in the U.S. Uh, when she was 16. So both my neighbors and my mom always encouraged me to live in the U.S. one day. So when I was 16, 17, I lived in California, in Napa, uh, graduating uh, from high school. Um, and then I came back to Germany. I, I studied in Germany. And then I went back to California um, to study uh, at San Diego State University. So I've, I've lived in different countries. Uh, and then for the last 12 years, I've lived in the U.K., do you have a story from your childhood days that will tell us a lot about the kind of person that you've become? I, um, I, I was the type of kid that just loved being outdoors all day, um, surrounding myself with lots of people. I'm a very social person. I love people. Um, so I, I played all day and I got into a lot of trouble because I wouldn't come back for dinner and my parents had to run outside looking for me. <laughs> um, and I think that's pretty, pretty typical of me, just you know, being outdoors, having fun, being on my legs, not sitting at a desk. What did you want to do when you grew up? Uh, believe it or not, I, I always said I wanted to be a chef. I watched how my mom made amazing food. So I always thought as a kid I would be a chef one day. Uh, and then I, I stumbled into finance, as one did um, pre-financial crisis. Um, but I, I always loved food, and I had the opportunity to live in Napa Valley, um, where I worked in a supermarket. Uh, you know, I, I, I've got godparents in Napa Valley um, who have vineyards and ice cream shops. So I always like aspired entrepreneurs who set up food businesses. Yeah, you know, you went to Cambridge University, and so what was your first job out of school, and, and what did you learn from it? I I did an internship. Um, I mean, I had a, a couple of obvious jobs in a supermarket, in a vineyard, all, all kinds of small things. Um, but then my first proper job was an internship at BMW. 
And I spent six months uh, in Germany and Spain introducing a new car. Um, and the, the, the key manager from the BMW got ill. Um, so they gave me the management job um, as an intern. So I really learned kind of the lesson of, um, you know, you work hard, you're ambitious, and then you're given huge ownership. Um, and it really instilled a lot of confidence in me. What was the, the route that, that you took that ultimately made you an entrepreneur from that point? Um, I, so, um, so I started in finance. Um, I had a small startup at university, and then my godparents are hardcore entrepreneurs. They have built a dozen of companies in the, over the last 50 years. Some of them failed, others did, did really well. Um, so I always looked up to them. Um, I started a small company at university, just having fun. Um, and then I went into finance. What was that company? What was that company, <laughs> To be honest, so the stock market went up uh, and up and up and up when I studied. So we launched a student fund, um, raising money from students and investing student money. And we did phenomenally well. Um, but to be honest, plain luck, we invested into Chinese sugar manufacturers. And since the stock market went up, those penny stocks went up even further. And everyone thought we we're amazing at stock picking, um, but we weren't. <laughs> so, so how did you get out of that business? We, again, we were so incredibly lucky. We, um, we shut down the fund. Um, I mean, we made, we made a decent amount of money, but we shut it down when we graduated. And we graduated in, uh, in late 2007, so right before the financial crisis at the peak. And it, again, it looked like we we're amazing at stock picking, but obviously only luck. <laughs> well, what is that saying? You want to be both lucky and good? It sounds like you were both in that case. But now you went from there to, you, you, you work at a hedge fund, right? Yes. So I, I, I joined investment banking first and I, I feel like I got an amazing toolbox. Um, lots of analytical skills, how to talk to clients, how to talk to CEOs, how to kind of, you know, be financially um, knowledgeable. Um, but I felt like I don't want to be an advisor. So I joined a hedge fund, um, spin-off from Goldman Sachs, and uh, was given huge ownership at a very young age. I did all the trading. I, I was managing um, the London office, um, and we had a $200 million um, long-short equity fund I was in charge of. Um, so it was tremendous pressure, tremendous ownership, uh, and, and, and it just changed the way I thought. Um, you know, be before joining the hedge fund, I, it would have never occurred to me to pick up the phone to a CEO. And in this environment, you know, I, I was encouraged to just fly somewhere, meet the CEO, meet the team for my own opinion. If I like the stock, buy the stock. Um, if not, sell the, the stock. Um, it, it was a tremendous learning experience. So I'm really grateful for it. So you started out very early on. You end up managing a BMW business. Then you end up managing a hedge fund business. You know, you're, you're not even 25 yet. How do you, how did you get so much responsibility so early? I, um, I really, I, I think I've, I've always managed to surround myself with people who are better than me. Um, I'm, I'm a but how do you do that? How do you do that at 25? <laughs> I mean, that's you know, that sounds point. all nice and good, but yeah. you know, how, how did this happen? What do you have that made that happen? I guess I'm a learnaholic. I listen to all types of people all day. I learn very, very fast. Um, I'm, I'm good with numbers. Um, 
and then I work incredibly hard. Um, my parents have taught me the value of um, kindness, generosity, and you know, people focus. And then I always had really um, good work ethics, um, and and I took ownership over whatever I would do from a, from an early age. Tell us the story of how you came up with the, your idea for Gusto. So I, in 2011, I traveled to Italy um, during um, truffle season, which is phenomenal. And we, we were 14 guys traveling to Italy, a couple of Italians. We ate phenomenal food. And in the back of my mind, I enjoyed working in finance. I enjoyed the responsibility, but I really wanted to start my own business. So when in Italy, I, I really felt like I have to start my own business. I have to do something around food. Um, so I kind of combined the two, and then I, I, I did a little bit of thinking. You know, I saw four big trends in the market, sustainability, health, convenience, and online. Those are the four biggest trends in, in Europe, and I'm sure in the U.S. as well, in grocery land. And there are absolutely seismic shifts in the market. So I felt like th this idea of Gusto um, is ticking all four boxes. It's a much more sustainable way. It's healthy for you. It's, it's so convenient because you get everything delivered. There's no food waste. So this is how it kind of started. But to be honest, I was quite naive when I, when I launched it, and I obviously I had to throw away the plan on day one. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to build a business from scratch, yet, yet you've done it. Can you tell us a, 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 a story of what was your, your biggest struggle early on? Um, I mean, initially, um, I got this all wrong. I focused on myself as a customer, young, cash-rich, time-poor. Um, and to be honest, the, the people who cook the most are families who live outside of big cities, who live incredibly busy lives. So I think I got the proposition all wrong. Um, and then secondly, the biggest learning has been around how do you build a team? How do you really you know, empower a leadership team? How do you hire people who are more senior than you? Um, what's a good culture? How do you against, hire against that culture? Um, to be very honest, the first three senior executives I hired, I had to fire um, because they absolutely killed the culture. Um, and that was enormously painful from an emotional point of view um, and, and one of the biggest learnings. What would you tell entrepreneurs who are maybe one or two clicks behind you in terms of their thought process and where they're at? Uh, what have you learned that's sort of untaught and unspoken? I think, I think leadership looks really glamorous from the outside. But when you're on the inside, uh, I think it's really all about learning to manage yourself. What are your demons? How do you turn limiting factors into, um, into sources of energy? How do, you, how do you energize yourself when you are in the energy trough? Um, th this stuff no one really teaches you at business school. Um, but, but everyone has ups and downs and, and, and personal issues. And so managing yourself before you lead others, I think, is, is, is kind of my biggest, biggest lesson learned. How, how do you energize yourself when you get in that trough? Uh, you know, I, uh, all the typical stuff. I, I exercise. Um, if I've got a bad day, I know I have to go to the gym even more. Um, exercise, running, good diet. But it's all about mental, mental fitness and mental health and, and putting your mindset um, um, to it. And then obviously helping others is a phenomenal way of getting yourself out of the, the low. Now that your business is a success, how do you make sure that you keep your edge? Um, 
So, I mean, as a company, we absolutely obsess about the customer. So it's all about listening to customer feedback. It's about really obsessing about customer net promoter score and then, you know, putting, putting everything, all our energy behind customer roadmaps, even if it takes a couple of years. Um, on a personal level, um, I'm, I'm trying really hard to educate myself. I'm, you know, I went to Cambridge University on weekends. Um, I'm becoming a certified coach at the moment. Um, so I'm coaching two CEOs um, who are 20 years older than I am uh, and two other phenomenal people. Uh, and I also sit on two, two company boards, uh, which I tremendously enjoy because it gives you so much perspective into other companies and cultures. So what makes you a good coach? Well, I'm not sure if I'm a good coach. I'm, I'm uh, not claiming that. Um, but I think, I think coaching is all about listening. It's about understanding what makes people tick. It's about uh, raising questions rather than subscribing answers. Um, and it's, uh, I think what I find fascinating is 30% of time people want to talk about confidence and imposter syndrome. 30% of time people want to talk about how to build a leadership team, how to build a great culture. And then 30% it's, it's individual topics. But, you know, the level of pattern recognition is actually quite large, um, which, which took me a long time to realize. Um, so I guess the, the more you coach, the better you get. Um, there's a huge network effect. Uh, and it's, that's really rewarding. You know, I know you do lectures for the industry and at, at Cambridge. Tell us a story ab about how that experience has powered your own leadership. Yeah, so I give um, guest lectures, I, you know, speak at conferences. Um, and I think it, it's, you know, if you're forced to distill your thoughts on a piece of paper and you have to write it down and you know the audience is really educated and sophisticated and you can't just wing it, 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 it's amazing for you on a personal level how it helps you to learn what you already know, but just by articulating it, I think it's, it's immensely powerful. And the first couple of times I did it, I was so nervous. I practiced and practiced, and, and you kind of make it through, and you feel, you know, I didn't feel great about myself. But then you get really good feedback, and it builds your confidence. You feel better the next time. And uh, you go back into your organization, and you see it in a different way. Um, you take some of the lessons into your team. It's, it's powerful. You know, I'm, I'm really curious. I saw where you went back and got an MBA after starting Gusto. Was there a specific experience that made you do it? Um, just for background, I, I came from a very high salary to no salary starting Gusto. And then it took me two, three years to draw a salary. And then after that, I pretty much had to tell my wife, oh, by the way, I'm, you know, the small salary I'm now drawing, I'm reinvesting into doing this MBA. Um, it was a very, um, I mean, she's always been massively supportive, but in hindsight, it, it felt quite brave back then. Um, yeah, I always, uh, I, I've known a couple of people who did MBAs and I felt like no one has ever taught me how to lead people or manage people. Everything I did was gut feel. Um, in finance, you don't learn anything about culture. Well, I mean, that's not fair, but, but it's you know, to a lesser extent, I think. So I felt like I, I should really train myself and, and do this. Um, it's a weekend course. Um, so every other weekend, uh, spending two days learning I was the youngest guy in the cohort. Everyone else was managing a lot more people. So I felt like I, I shamelessly learned from other people um, and stole their ideas. Um, so it was, it was amazing. I met, made friends for life and I met many great people. Two of them I hired. <laughs> you know, that's great. You know, you describe Gusto as a, as a data company that happens to sell food. Explain. 
Yeah, so data is running through everything we do. Um, we apply algorithms and automation in the supply chain, but we also push uh, personalization. So you should re really never ever see the menu I'm seeing. Um, if your daughter turns lactose-free or your son is vegan for months or wh whatever it is, we should really be for you. You should never see the same stuff. So personalization, customization, total customer obsession. Um, and, and to win in this market, given how um, emotional food is, we, we felt like early on that we really needed this technology and data focus. Um, because if you don't automate the, the factory, there's no way you can next day, same day, deliver food across all of the UK. Um, so we've always played this really long, long game, but it's really ingrained, even in smaller things. Every marketing campaign we do, we A-B test in real time on Facebook, Twitter. Um, everything we do is tested from a data point. You know, you've personally been described as an inspiring leader that can get all levels of the organization fired up about your vision. How do you do it? That's enormously kind. I don't know who said that. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, it's all, I think leadership is all about kindness and listening. And it's, it's about, you know, walking the floor and talking to people and understanding what their issues are, what their challenges are. I don't think there's a magic wand um, for leadership, but it, but it is really down to basics. It's how, how much care do you take of your people? Um, do you understand them? And are you mindful of their personal issues, um, which might cause performance issues and so on? So I think it's, it's this mentality. Um, care is one of our biggest principles at Gusto, one of the three um, values we have. So we hire people specifically for empathy, um, for that level of kind of leadership thinking. Can you give us a, an example of how you raise the bar and, and balance between being a cheerleader and believer in people and, and just the, the need to, to really make sure that you're, you're jumping over the, the, that hurdle? Yeah, I think it's all about high, high support, high challenge. If you're only in the high support um, area, then, then I think you know, you're not unlocking the best potential in people. It's all about finding this balance of, of stretching people, um, but at the same time supporting them. So I think, you know, for us as a company, we've worked really hard to create psychological safety. So everyone, including, you know, people in, in the factory floor and so on, everyone can speak up. Everyone can share their opinion. But at the same time, it is, uh, it's a meritocracy. It's, it's very data-driven. Data is hugely transparent. You can look up what anyone is working on uh, in the company. Everyone has goals. Um, goals have timelines. Um, so I think you create this high-performance culture where people really want to strive. Uh, and then you try to reinforce it. So every time somebody succeeds at anything, um, we, um, we celebrate them. So we have quarterly events. We give people, um, you know, extra holidays for achieving amazing things. People nominate people for ownership awards. Um, so the culture becomes reinforcing. It's obvious you're almost crazy intentional about building culture. You go back to get an MBA so you can learn more about it. You know, where did this, where did this come from? I think my mom has always taught me the, the value of kindness and, and generosity. And my dad has always been... Both of them have always been extremely curious. So we would have, you know, going back all the way to, to kind of me having dinner as a kid, my dad has those 
huge books everywhere and you would pull them out whenever we discussed anything and, and you know we didn't have Google back then or Wikipedia so we would pull out huge books and he would kind of instill this this idea into me that if you don't know stuff it doesn't really matter as long as you look it up um, you can't not know it you have to look it up so um, we would interrupt dinner probably five ten times every single day <laughs> look up stuff in big books now it's easier my dad still mm. pulls out books um, <laughs> But I, I, I think it's it's that mentality. It doesn't matter yeah. what you know. It's about how you get the information. Now you mentioned care and hiring for empathy. What are your other cultural values and, and how do you go about creating them? Yeah, so the other, other, so we have three values. They're dream, deliver, care. And then we have nine ownership principles that are kind of nine, nine behaviors that underpin them and bring them alive. Um, but I mean, dream is all about thinking big. No one knows how this model can look in the next 10 years or 20 years. Your idea might be much better than, than my idea. Um, so it's blue ocean. It's not me knowing how the future looks. I really need you and everyone to think big to figure this out. So this is kind of the first idea. And and part of, of uh, Dream is also this idea of self-development, you know, taking ownership over your own development. The second value is, is deliver. I mean, any startup has to deliver value fast to customers or you fail. It's really, really simple. So we've always been um, obsessed about results, um, numbers, um, data, um, building a meritocracy where people really get promoted fast for, for doing amazing things. Um, but then the third one is this care idea, doing it collectively, collaborating across functions. As we get bigger, I mean, by, by your standards, we're still a tiny company, but for us, it feels like we're getting a lot bigger. So collaboration is becoming increasingly important. Um, no politics, no silos, working you know, as one team, from pulling from the same side, super important. I understand, uh, T Timo, that you, you wrote and published a letter which was entitled, A Letter to My Younger Self, One Day You'll Have to Take Your Hands Off the Wheel. You know, why, why did you write this letter and what's the essence of it? Um, it's been a fun exercise. It's been a while ago. Um, uh, I think it's difficult when you are you know, in the grind, you're working really, really hard and long hours all the time, you almost have to force yourself to step out of the noise and, and, and force yourself to reflect and build this, um, you know, reflection practice. Um, it's hard. So I felt like I, sh I should probably write down my thoughts and, and share them. And um, I guess one of the biggest lessons learned for me is, is this, this whole, how do you empower a team how do you move away from you being the founder and deciding everything to the team taking decisions um, in a much faster way and the team collectively being better than you as a founder, much, much, much better. And that's a very, um, it's a difficult transition as a founder um, because you're used to being the number one guy, but it's no, no longer scalable. Um, so I think it's taken me two, three years to really, really, really build this team, empower the team, you know, come up with a, a team charter, team values, red and green card behaviors, all this good stuff. Um, but now it's amazing because I've got headspace. The team more or less runs the business. I've got headspace to think, um, to, you know, to take care of culture and people and, and strategy. So you're obviously hiring great talent. Do you have anything unique about your hiring process uh, that, that helps you really bring in the best and the brightest? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've done all the standard stuff. You know, we do, um, we do our personality tests, and we do some intelligent tests and, and case study interviews. But I think what, 
what ultimately works the best is once that's all done, it all comes down to personality. So I, you know, I like to take out um, future hires for dinner, for brunch. Um, I take the entire leadership team out for breakfast, um, including the new person before we make an offer. It's, it's about chemistry. It's about understanding whether they fit in. And if we have certain reservations, we try to create, you know, a situation where we really push the person's button. Um, so we role play. One person in the leadership team takes a certain role, pushes the buttons, and that really brings out certain things um, you can't figure out in interviews easily. You mentioned earlier when you first started the company, you had a few people you brought on that you had to fire. What did you learn from that experience and how to do it? I think I, th I think when I started the business, I didn't have the appreciation for culture I have today. And what I learned the hard way is you can only mess it up once. So if you bring in um, somebody, I mean, we brought in somebody from a hugely prestigious company. You know, the guy was 30 years older than I am. He managed hundreds of employees. But then he joined our company. And what we didn't know is that he shouts at people and, and he built a, a, a horrible kind of, um, uh, you know, level of pressure on people. So, so the how, the what was good, he achieved results, but the how was all wrong. And so within a couple of days, I had, you know, the entire company, I mean, we, we had a small company back then, but the entire company complained to me. So I had to lean into this tough decision. You know, the guy was kind of performing but in, in a horrible way that would drive away my most talented people really quickly if I didn't, if I didn't do anything. So I felt um, obligated to act fast. Um, and in hindsight, I think the best decision was to do it really, really fast. I fired him after 10, 12 weeks. And everyone pretty much said, well done, thank you. Um, this is great, makes perfect <laughs> sense. No one was surprised. And, and then I sadly had to do it twice again because um, I didn't learn fast enough from it. Uh, I think I was so blinded by the fact that I can hire those senior people. I was amazed by it, and I didn't put enough care into selecting them against culture. Um, after after I messed it up three times, I feel like we now have a really, really uh, robust way of interviewing. Um, but even now, you only get it right 75% of times. Right. You know, how do you know when to take your hands off the wheel when when you're managing others? I mean, I think leadership is all about giving and taking space. Ultimately, I feel like my job is to define the vision. Where where do we want to be? Um, and when do we want to be where? Uh, but then it's all about giving people space. So, you know, whether they take um, Avenue A or Avenue B, it's up to them, really. They have to own the consequences, but they take the decision. And I mean, you quickly realize which, which leader, which function is capable of doing this and which one isn't. Um, so I think for you as a CEO, the key thing is to build up an understanding of what high standards look like by function. Um, so I, if I don't know anything about marketing, I call up 20 CMOs um, to understand how their brain works. And then after I talk to 20 CMOs, I understand or I start to understand how high standards look like. And if I realize my own function doesn't operate at those high standards, I try to enforce them and I, you know, I try to bring in this level of thinking. Um, so I think it's, it's, it, your job is to constantly assess where we are. Um, we have a wonderful mechanism for this. We have quarterly super days 
which means I'm spending two full days in every single function, um, every single quarter, meeting every person apart from the management leadership team. So everyone is presenting what they did last quarter, what they do next quarter, every junior person. And it builds this in insane level of understanding where each function is, how they progress over time. It gives you an opportunity to celebrate and recognize people. It's, it's one of the most fun things we do. You know, speaking of recognition, how does that play into your personal management style? So I tried to copy what you do, um, but it, <laughs> it hasn't worked yet. We're not doing it right. My team doesn't want to sing. Um, but, uh, no, it's all. I think it's all about um, it's all about finding your own mechanisms. For example, we have um, we have quarterly town halls where people can nominate people who epitomize the ownership principles. Um, so if you've done something amazing around care, somebody might nominate you and then you win you know, extra holidays, a bottle of champagne, everyone is clapping, your picture is on the wall. It, it doesn't cost a lot. People absolutely love it. You've got a, a list of personal awards that basically takes up a full, full page. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, how do you stay humble and do you have a story that really drives home the importance of, of, of being humble? I think business is moving so incredibly fast that, um, you know, we, we today have a business that's, that looks like it's succeeding. But who knows how this business looks in two, three years? Um, somebody might out-execute us. So I think business is really about being humble and, and staying hungry and lean and focused. Um, you can mess it up so fast and you see this every single day. Companies, great companies going from great to poor to out of business. So I think it's, it's really instilling this, um, this work ethic into the team that you know, we have to relentlessly focus um, to, to win. So to me, it's, it's about celebrating the team and recognizing them. But I'm, I'm super future-oriented. I think we're on day one of building Gusto. We have you know, 10, 20 more years of hard work in, in front of us. Well, so how do you stay self-aware as a, as a leader and as a company? And, and how, do you, how do you also take this massive belief in learning and, and make sure it cascades across your organization? Yeah, so we do um, we do twice a year. We do um, 360 feedback. Everyone can give me feedback. Um, people people are amazingly generous in, in you know sharing the good stuff, the bad stuff, and it helps. Once you're past this this defensiveness, it really helps you to kind of build development plans by person. So I hope that everyone at Gusto has personal development plans every single half year and to focus on learning. Because once you realize how much the company can do to create unique experiences for you as a person, it's just mind-blowing how fast, um, you know, how learning can be um, uh, expedited. So that's kind of the belief system. You got to give systematic feedback, but then you have to turn it into development plans by person. And then you got to celebrate every single milestone they achieve. I have to tell you, most of my interviews are with CEOs and leaders of the United States. And obviously, we've been going through COVID-19 here. And uh, I just thought it'd be great to get a perspective on, on how you're looking as a leader, what's happening with COVID-19, uh, with your business, and also across Europe. You know, you're based in London, I know. So, obviously, it's extremely difficult for, for all of us, um, you know, in this time. Uh, I'm feeling enormously proud of the team for, for rising to the occasion. 
Um, my top priorities were to really focus on team safety, focus on customer satisfaction, and then make sure that we have enough uh, capacity to really feed the nation across all of the UK. Um, and I'm really proud the team has, has done such a fantastic job. We're hitting 80% net promoter score. The team is safe. So we really, really achieved our core mission um, of safety and, and customer satisfaction. We continue to innovate during this crisis. We have uh, launched innovation that has seen our plastic scores come down hugely. We have pushed uh, new product launches to customers to make sure you know, whilst customers have to stay home, um, they at least get to enjoy amazing food. Um, and now we're seeing real, real big breakthroughs uh, on capacity. So for us as a food business, feeding the nation volume has been unprecedentedly high. Um, and I'm extremely you know, thankful to the team for doing such an amazing job. When you look at the UK briefly regarding your question on Europe, um, I think it's fair to say that Germany probably did um, the best job in Europe handling the crisis uh, for various reasons. Do you have a particular story that you're, you're really proud of where you guys have innovated and done something unique? Yeah, I mean, like, look, we, you know, for example, we, um, we worked on this new uh, innovation for 18 months. And I think most companies would have just postponed the launch. Um, and I have uh, a team of really, really, really amazing people who secured a Gusto patent for that solution right pre-COVID. And they then decided to work every single day instead of working from home. They worked out of the factory to make sure the launch goes well. And I'm just incredibly proud of them. Um, every single day, they drove to the factory. They worked seven days a week, night and day. They got it live. And it's meant that we've seen, I, I think, another 77 million plastic straws are now taken out of the system, You know, the equivalent of those 77 million plastic straws. So enormously proud of those people rising to the occasion, going the extra mile, going to the factory, despite you know them being able to work from home if they wanted to. Yeah, that is great. You know, I suppose with, you know, being in the mill kit business, you, 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 your businesses had to take off because people were getting home delivery. So are you having record growth? We are having record growth. Um, we're just making sure we can fulfill. And I'm extremely, extremely proud of the team that customer satisfaction stayed so high. We saw 10 times the volume on certain uh, days than pre-COVID-19. Um, we're seeing you know, five to 10 years of secular trend compressed into the matter of weeks. So pre-COVID, 7% of grocery was traded online. Now in the UK, it's 12% you know, in, a, in a market that's hundreds of billions. Um, so it's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, that, that's that's amazing. And as you look to the future, what do you think has changed that's going to be a major plus for your business down the road? I think ultimately um, customers who try online for the first time and they then get into the habit, they get it five to 10 times, they will stay in that habit. So that change, the shift, the seismic shift towards online is here to stay. It's only accelerating because the shift has been artificially constrained by capacity not being available. Now supermarkets, Amazon, everyone is heavily investing into online grocery capabilities. So we're seeing a second wave shift uh, in the next 12 to 18 months, I would assume. 
And um, the online experience, the customer satisfaction is just so high. People will not return to what they did before. You know, I talked to uh, Brian Cornell, who's the CEO of Target uh, recently, and he said that he felt with all the virtual meetings and people from across the company calling in, that he was closer to what was going on than maybe he was even before COVID-19. How do you look at that? I I totally agree. I think um, the big benefit is it feels to me that we're like squeezing months and months of innovation into weeks um, simply because we're talking seven days a week. And the level of focus from the leadership team, the management team on very detailed discussion is greater than ever before. So I do think we're seeing a massive acceleration in execution capabilities you know, you're a huge champion of diversity and especially women in business. Why is this a, a passion point for you? Yeah, it's a very personal one. Um, I look at, you know, my wife um, who works in research. Um, she's a neuroscience researcher. And it's it's a man-dominated world. And it's it can be tough, I think, for, for female um, researchers out there because the culture is, um, well, very male-dominated. And similarly, one of my best friends... Um, she played tennis at the Olympics. She, she worked in uh, investment banking in the 90s in New York as a female uh, trader, as the only female trader. And then she went away having two kids. Now she came back to work only to find out that things haven't changed that much. Yes, there's a lot of uh, you know, language that, that has changed. But when you look at the statistics, the world hasn't moved forward that much. And it's, it's, it's quite sad in a way. So I feel this obligation for Gusto to be you know, a, a force of positive um, uh, movement in the right direction. And, and also from a purely selfish point, right? we need 50-50 talent pool. We can't afford to not hire the very best people, whether they're male um, or female or, or whatever other background they have. What would be three bits of advice you could give uh, other aspiring leaders? Well, you got to manage yourself before you lead others. That's absolutely number one. Um, and I think you got to play the long game. We see so much shortism in this world, uh, and the quarterly earnings are obviously extremely important. But playing the long game, I really think, stands out in today's world. Um, and then I think it's about uh, it's about you know setting big, bold ambitions. Um, setting mediocre targets is just the most commonly traveled avenue to mediocreness. And so you got to stretch yourself and your beliefs. It's as hard to work towards a, you know, a really big goal as it is to work towards a small goal. So those would be my three ones. Great. Yeah, can you share a little bit about your, your personal life and how you keep things in, in balance and perspective? Yeah, I'm, I'm still working on that. Um, no, it's look, it's it's hard. My wife and I work um, long hours. Uh, business is all-consuming. I'm obviously on email every weekend, every night. Um, but I think we we make it work. Um, we're very supportive of each other. We uh, we sometimes travel together. So if my wife has conferences somewhere, I I will travel with her to support her, um, and she does the same. Um, we do have a full-time nanny, which is um, super, super helpful. Uh, and then I, I, I've got my home gym. I work out at home. Um, I run to the office. I take a shower in the office. you got to make it work somehow in the most time-efficient way. <laughs> um, and then we try to have, have dinner together as much as we can. I'm, I'm, I'm still cooking twice, three times a week. Obviously, I'm a paying Gusto customer, um, and that's, that's important to us. 
What do you see as the, the, the biggest trends happening in, in, in your, your business? I think personalization of food is, is a huge trend that's powered by the necessity to be healthy. I think in five years, Gusto could be a preventive healthcare company. What I mean by that is for the last hundred years, um, you and I have been eating pills um, and, uh, you know, healthcare was pretty much defined by eating pills. When you look at the future, healthcare is all about being active. It's about fitness, but then it's about food and food as, um, you know, source of, of fuel. So I can see this, way, this world where convenience and online are powering the rise of personalization. Um, 80% of our revenues are coming from, uh, from the mobile phone. Um, and, and people, you know, really, really care about customizing everything, about personalizing it. What you eat is probably unhealthy for me. So I think this is the biggest trend um, we're trying to catch. You know, you, you're, I've listened to you and, and you're so impressive. You're making so much happen within your company and you've got great desire to, to grow. How are you planning the long game for yourself? And where do you see yourself going from here? <laughs> um, my, my biggest hope is to be fortunate enough to run this company um, for a long, long, long time. I really think this is day one, and we've got so much opportunity to really have positive impact on people and the planet. But then on a personal level, I, I built those 10-year, not plans, but you know, I have a view of where I want to be in 10 years because I'm a massive believer in you being the best version of yourself and not looking at other people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I want to sit on, um, on a publicly listed board. I think that's the next step. Um, currently, I'm sitting on two amazing boards, but, but none of them is publicly listed. Since Gusto uh, eventually might um, publicly list, I think that's, that's a huge benefit for me and the company for me to experience. Um, and then it's all about staying, staying hungry and, you know, um, exercising, being healthy. Uh, and, and continuing to learn and, and managing more and more people to experience how it feels. Firstly, you just mentioned the, the boards, you know, but I, I understand that you've created your own personal board of advisors with, with you have around 10 mentors. Where'd you get this idea? Yeah, so I now even by function have um, an advisory board. So I've got a tech advisory board, a marketing advisory board. And uh, over time, I realized that people are genuinely so keen to help and if you ask them to help they, they normally say yes so since i'm not an expert in technology um i rely on other amazing world-class um, chief technology officers to join me for a bottle of wine and discuss what gusto is doing well and what gusto is not doing well so that i understand and you know can talk to my team in a better way um so i've i've uh, i've also um had the audacity to write um, crazy people letters. So I've written Al Gore uh, a letter when I, was, um, when I was 22 or 23. And to my huge surprise, uh, he invited me for dinner. Um, I, I've not only emailed him a letter, but I've emailed pretty much five to 10 superstar people a letter I wanted to meet. And El Gore is one of the few people who actually came back saying, okay, let's have, let's have dinner. So I had the pleasure of having dinner with El Gore three times in the last you know, six years. Um, so it, it kind of taught me the value of being slightly crazy and just asking you know, amazing people um, <laughs> for help. Well, I think you're, you're, I will make one comment here. 
your, your craziness is definitely going to pay off. It's already <laughs> paying off for you now. And it's so exciting to see someone like yourself who is so passionate about what you're doing for people and the business that you're building. I want to thank you so much for sharing your insights, Timo. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I read your books a couple of times and it's been amazing uh, meeting uh, in person. Thank you. Boy, I just love how committed Timo is to constantly pushing himself and learning and growing. I mean, he's out there developing his coaching skills, injecting data into every part of the business. Heck, he even wrote a letter to Al Gore to see what he could learn from him on the environment. And he knows he's got to stretch himself if he wants to accomplish the big goals he set at Gusto. And make no mistake, Timo has no time for mediocre goals. In fact, he says that's the most commonly traveled path to mediocre results. Boom! What a mic drop moment. He's so right on. So let me build on that insight a little and offer you some coaching. I'm going to go out on the limb here and say, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, then I bet you have a list of goals, probably multiple lists for multiple kinds of goals. So this week is part of your weekly personal development plan. I want you to review those goals and look for one that's just not audacious enough. Maybe it's absolutely mediocre. Sometimes we set less ambitious goals because we don't want to fail. Or we sandbag a little because we want to say we hit those goals. Or maybe it's just that we don't have a big enough vision. Give your goals a hard look and be honest. Are they big enough? Or are they only going to get you mediocre results? Intentionally stretch yourself to get big goals and then make sure you're taking the actions to reach them. And I know it will be a game-changing shift for you as a leader if you haven't been doing it before. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders intentionally stretch themselves. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. 